Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. The leading agricultural commodity in California, it's dairy. But the Golden State's dairy operations have been beset by a large degree of uncertainty in trade relations with our neighbors, as well as contraction of operations, to put it mildly. Recently at the Wisconsin Dairy Expo, USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue didn't exactly please the crowd when he talked about the future of small dairy farms. We have that report. Can solar panels give a farmer economic certainty in these very uncertain times? We crunched the numbers. The chickens are coming home to roost, if you'll pardon that farm metaphor, for the USDA and its relocation of its scientific and research departments from Washington, D.C. to the Midwest. And there's a lot of money and information that's not getting to farmers and researchers as a result. All that, crop reports, the week ahead in weather, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The Wall Street Journal reports that farmers are embracing an alternative means of turning sunlight into revenue during a sharp downturn in crop prices. And that, of course, would be solar power. Tariffs have cut demand for American crops. Futures prices for several commodities are all trading around their lowest level since 2010. Farm bankruptcies have increased 13% in the first half of this year to the highest level since 2012, according to the American Farm Bureau Federation. Can solar keep farmers whole? While farmers have two options for adding solar power on their farms, they can lease land for energy companies to generate power to funnel electricity into the grid, or they can install their own solar panels to cut their own electric bills. Both methods can amount to more than $1,000 a month in improved margins, that according to farmers and renewable energy advocates. As of 2017, there are some 90,000 farms using solar equipment, three times the number using solar panels back in 2012. The U.S. Department of Energy estimates that solar panels will cover 3 million acres by 2030. That compares with only 285,000 acres generating solar power in 2018. That according to Wall Street Journal calculations. The average cost to install solar is about $2.99 per watt, according to the online solar marketplace Energy Sage. For farmers, costs can total from $40,000 to well over $100,000. During this past week's U.N. General Assembly meetings in New York, President Trump met with Japanese Prime Minister Abe. We signed a terrific new trade deal, which tremendously helps our farmers and ranchers. It's a great agreement, and it's a big win for U.S. agriculture. Deputy Agriculture Secretary Steve Sensky was in New York at the signing of the deal, and on a large scale, here's what it does. Right now, the U.S. sells Japan about $14 billion worth of ag products. And and we have about $6 billion of that that's already duty-free. And under this agreement, another $7 billion will be, tariffs will be either eliminated or reduced. And so that's going to cover around 90% of the dutiful trade that we have going into Japan. Now, we don't have time to list all of the U.S. ag products that could see more sales in Japan, but Sensky says beef producers should come out well. Japan is already their top market. We're going to see the tariffs go down from about 38% down to around 9%. Meanwhile, Japan's already the biggest market U.S. pork producers have. We export about $1.8 billion worth of pork to Japan. And once again, we're going to see our tariffs go down. 
So U.S. beef and pork should end up competitive in Japan with other suppliers who are in the Trans-Pacific Partnership with Japan. Dairy producers already sell Japan about $750 million worth of products every year. And under the agreement, we're going to have tariff reductions for a lot of our products, our hard cheeses, our mozzarella. We have some specific quotas for whey and processed cheese and skim milk powder. And so it really is a a big win. For crops, U.S. wheat should eventually see more sales in Japan as import quotas gradually grow. But beyond the big products... We're going to eliminate the tariff for ethanol, eliminate tariffs on products like almonds and walnuts and sweet corn and uh, grain sorghum and food supplements and broccoli, dried plums and more. Sensky says there are also staged gradual tariff reductions for many other products. But does this agreement have to be ratified by Congress like the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement? Sensky says no. It can be approved uh, by executive agreement, and so we don't have to wait on Congress to do this. And so Sinsky says the goal is to have this thing kick into operation January 1st. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. As the water year comes to a close, a California Department of Water Resources storage summary showed all but three reservoirs listed running at or above their historical average. For example, Lake Oroville, the state water project's largest reservoir, is currently at 102% of average for the date. That compares to just 62% of average at this time last year. Shasta Lake, the Central Valley project's largest reservoir, is at 126% of average compared to 88% of average last year. The largest off-stream reservoir is San Luis Reservoir, where water is stored for both the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project. And it's at 132% of average, comparing to 117% of average last year. So all that water is good news. However, the wet year we just had didn't provide full water supplies for all. Customers of the State Water Project and South of Delta Agricultural Water Contractors of the Federal Central Valley Project had 75% supplies, according to the California Farm Bureau Federation. That's a fact that some agriculture advocates say points to the need for additional storage. The rise of alternative proteins prompts questions about how the products will impact animal agriculture production and demand. However, Scott Bennett, American Farm Bureau Federation Congressional Relations Director, says alternative proteins are not a threat to conventional meat in diets. There will always be a demographic of consumers that want and prefer conventional meat. And to be honest, that's most consumers in America. If a consumer wants to try a plant-based protein, by all means, let them try it. Our job here is just to make sure they know exactly what it is they are buying, which is in fact not meat. Bennett says AFBF supports consumer choice. However, labels cannot be deceptive or misleading. Alternative proteins are not meat, and that needs to be crystal clear. Look, in my opinion, these products are for a niche market. For most Americans just trying to feed their family, they're headed to the meat counter to pick up their next meal. Bennett says it's important to stay focused on growing the protein market. We tend to get caught up on the small slice of the pie of the market share that these alternative proteins are capturing. I would rather us focus on growing the size of the pie. That benefits more diets globally and still allows for that consumer choice. And American producers of protein are first in line to benefit from that growth. Michael Clements, Washington. 
The California Farm Bureau Federation recently chatted with Calusa County rice farmer Don Trainum, who talks about the 2019 harvest season, and he thinks prospects for the crop are looking pretty good. The 2019 crop year was a, a good growing season. We just had one major weather event the end of May with above average rainfall. Besides that, the growing season has been very ideal. Most of the crop is in really good condition. There may be 10 to 15 percent that may be below average yields due to late planting and the storms in May. 2019 crop, we planted almost the same amount of acres we did in 2018. Uh, 2018, we were able to sell all the rice that we grew in 2018. Coming into 2019, we had minimal carryover, and with the similar acreage as we had last year, we should have similar volumes. Therefore, our pricing should be very good. In Calusa County, rice is one of the big four ag commodities grown there. The others include walnuts, almonds, and tomatoes. And over in Placer County, rice was the big winner. Placer County's top five crops for 2018 include walnuts, timber, nursery stock, cattle and calves. And number one for 2018 in Placer County is rice. It's valued at over $20 million and it's up 140%. Let's take a look at the weather ahead for the southern Sacramento and northern San Joaquin Valleys for the period October 7th through the 14th. Looks to be mostly sunny skies. The week will start off warm with highs in the mid to upper 80s, lowering down to the mid to lower 80s by the end of the week, maybe even some upper 70s. Overnight lows for the most part will be in the low 50s if you're looking for a chance of rain. According to AccuWeather, the next chance of rain for us is about October the 28th. Here's this week's California crop report. In Tulare County, cotton balls were opening and fields were being sprayed with defoliants. Alfalfa continues to be cut, dried, and baled. Fields of harvested corn and sorghum are being fertilized and prepped for winter forage. Black-eyed beans are being cut and dried. As fall arrived, nectarine, peach, plum, pluot, and prune harvest began to slow down. The pear, fig, olive, pomegranate, and Asian pear harvest continues. Post-harvest pruning and mechanical topping of stone fruit orchards is ongoing. After harvest, some older stone fruit orchards are being pushed out to clear for fumigation, then replanting. The kiwi harvest began in Tulare County. Quince and persimmons are showing color. Table and wine grape harvest is ongoing. Raisins were being rolled and picked up for processing. A limited amount of Valencia oranges were harvested. Valencia oranges were gassed to counter regreening. Lemon and lime harvest continues. Citrus groves were pruned, hedged, and skirted. Some old groves were pushed out and replaced with new plantings. Walnut and pistachio harvest continues while almond harvest began to wrap up for the season. Harvested and young orchards were being irrigated. Post-harvest fertilizer applications were underway. Over in San Mateo County, the fall squash and leeks are being harvested. In Calusa, Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo counties, the processing tomato harvest is winding down due to muddy conditions. In Tulare County, cucumbers, squash, tomatoes, and bell peppers are being sold at farmers' markets. Foothill rangeland and non-irrigated pasture were reported to be in fair to poor condition. Irrigated pasture is in good to excellent condition. Recent precipitation in the North State improved pasture conditions. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. 
Okay, here's a quick quiz. What's the biggest dairy state in the United States? No, it's not Wisconsin. It's California. California continues to be the nation's leading dairy state. The Golden State sale of milk and cream totaled $6.5 billion in 2017. That's up from just a little over $6 billion in 2016. Wisconsin's the runner-up state, followed by New York, Idaho, and Texas. The top five dairy states account for over 55% of total U.S. dairy receipts. California ranks number one in the U.S. in the production of fluid milk, butter, Hispanic cheeses, dry buttermilk, and non-fat dry milk. Now, Wisconsin does have one big bragging point. They can continue to wear those wedges of cheese on top of their heads because California continues to be second in total cheese production behind Wisconsin. Now, why are we talking California versus Wisconsin here? Well, we're not really. We're talking about the problems in the world of dairy throughout the United States. And recently, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, paid a visit to the World Dairy Expo in Madison, Wisconsin. The USDA's Rod Bain has the details. Welcoming the world to Madison, Wisconsin this week. A meeting place for the global dairy industry. Home to your tools for dairy's progress. As industry experts and dairy enthusiasts come together for this special event. Home of the World Dairy Expo. Among those greeted in the Badger State Tuesday, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. I want to exhort you all to come and to make your voices heard. I think the dairy industry does a good job at that. The secretary at a town hall meeting discussing several issues impacting the dairy industry, ranging from trade. Really a fight we've had with the EU all along who's prosecuting their geographical indicators because of historical locations. To policy. We hear a lot of comments about the federal marketing order. That's a pretty complex type of issue. Secretary Purdue also visited several locales during the day in Wisconsin, including entities connected to USDA's farm to school program and research facilities within the land grant and agriculture department systems. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Let's go a little deeper into what Sonny Purdue had to say to the Wisconsin dairy farmers at that open town forum recently at the World Dairy Expo. These were about issues that also concern California dairy people. And he knows how to sway a crowd. He brought up one fact that all farmers agree on when it comes to the world of trade and tariffs, that farmers don't want a handout. They just want to be able to sell in a free marketplace. I'd rather have a good crop or a good uh, milk uh, poundage at a fair price than a government check any day or crop that's insurance right. check. That's and, right. and that's that's what, you know, that's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, so I'm happy when this insurance doesn't get covered because it means that we're getting improving milk prices, which are very necessary in that regard. The Farm Bureau has a good program there. So between that and the, the uh, dairy margin coverage program, I would just uh, hope everyone's looked at those kind of programs to make sure they can do their risk management in a way to continue to survive. Certainly, uh, we, what we saw was a lot of dairies going out of business, but not that much reduction in cows. And that's the problem. Those cows are going to the neighbors or, or someone who is, uh, uh, the, the problem with dairy, I'm, I'm gonna speak to you guys for just a second. You know, they say when dairy, when milk prices are low, you need to milk more cows, right? To make up for it. And when dairy milk prices are high, you need to make milk more cows to take advantage of it. So that's who y'all are, right? So that's the problem we get with oversupply. We'll have more about the looming specter of dairy bankruptcies coming up in a minute. 
But during that town hall meeting in Madison, Wisconsin, Sonny Perdue did go in depth about the trade situation. Trade, obviously, is the number one issue I hear around the country. Labor's number two and regulation's number three, north, south, east, and west. And it's, uh, it's important because, uh, I mean, I hear about it because it's important. And uh, I like to put it in perspective. That isn't, it, isn't it wonderful to be in a country that's so blessed that we have to depend on foreign markets because of our productivity rather than becoming uh, food dependent here like we were on oil at one point in time? Uh, the fact is, USMCA, I've been in D and R districts around, around the country. Uh, I find no real measurable objection. I think the speaker, in her timing, uh, will bring this up, and I think it will pass. I, I frankly think if it were put on the floor today, it will pass both caucuses in that way. I think it's good for America. I think the NAFTA was good, but uh, this is a more modern agreement in uh, e-commerce and many other ways that you all sanitary, phytosanitary issues, as well as certainly the eliminating the unfair Class 7 milk that our neighbors to the north were uh, were engaging in. That was a circumvention of the rules of, of NAFTA, and they did it very shrewdly, and that's uh, that'll be stopped in that way. We need it sooner rather than later, obviously, and uh, I'm out about the country. Uh, again, you have to let your voices be heard. If you, uh, uh, you know, you have to communicate uh, your desires to policymakers for that to happen. Uh, I think it will be good in the Certainly in the dairy industry, I think it'd be good poultry, eggs, and others, uh, wine in British Columbia, wheat grading in uh, uh, the Northern Plains. Uh, that was very unfair to the wheat growers in the Northern Plains as well. So hopefully we can get that done. My concern is I've been very optimistic. I thought this would be on the plate as soon as they come back, came back from uh, being in the state. Uh, there have been some distractions uh, here the last few days that I'm, uh, uh, I'm hoping won't interfere with that. I'm trusting that Congress will, uh, will do the work of the people. I think a lot more people are concerned about trade and the economy than they are other things. And I'm hoping that that can get done sooner rather than later. And uh, we need to uh, make sure those expectations are known here and, and there. China is uh, certainly a different deal. I'm happy that we're continuing to... Uh, to talk, and uh, Chinese officials will be back in the country here uh, very soon. It's a good sign, but uh, does anyone ever know what China will do? Uh, back in April, we were uh, uh, we were very close to an agreement. I'd say 90 percent there. Uh, what we're what we're insisting, though, is China not just try to buy their way out of this temporarily and continue the bad habits they've had over the number of years. Really, since they joined the WTO, and that's what you're referring to. You. Uh, you said poor actors. I'd kind of say cheaters. And uh, you, yeah, you were very kind, more kind than me. But uh, anyway, uh, the flag's been thrown on that, and uh, they, need to, um, they need to reform many of their tariff and non-tariff barriers to make it more reciprocal and fair. Uh, listen, based on the productivity of the American farmer, rancher, dairyman, whatever, I can understand where other countries want to put up barriers, but they can't expect to come into our country uh, freely and fairly without opening up their markets. That includes the EU, India, and everywhere else. And that's, that's where we're going to develop other markets. We're using money from this market access program through the market, the $16 billion, to try to grow markets elsewhere. You know, your, your state is doing that and participating in those expansion of markets. So while we need to get resolved with China, we need other markets. We're, we're continuing to work on India. You know Japan deal will be good for dairy. 
good for dairy and beef and pork and wheat, primarily other crops as well. But those dairy will benefit from the Japanese agreement. But we're going to India, to Thailand, to Vietnam, to Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, those kind of countries. Ted McKinney, our undersecretary for trade, has been on the road for 10 days knocking on doors saying we want to do business. And that's what it's going to take to develop other markets all around the world. And I would love the day when we don't have to become dependent upon China like we had worked ourselves into a dependence upon the China market that way where we can trade fairly and frequently. Commerce does best when the, when the buyer and the seller have an equal uh, stake in the equation. They kind of they kind of toyed us into being more dependent upon their markets than they were on us. And that's what the, that's what the problem has been. So thank you for your comments. Well, as you might imagine, the dairy farmers who left that World Dairy Expo at Madison, Wisconsin after listening to the USDA secretary didn't go home very happy. Several Wisconsin farmers told the Associated Press that they left the event feeling even more discouraged. Now, about the bankruptcy situation. It's pretty tough times in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has lost 551 dairy farms so far this year after losing 638 in 2018. That according to Wisconsin data. Here in California, the situation isn't much better. By the end of 2017, there were 61 fewer dairies here. In 2016 and 2015, California lost 46 and 32 dairies, respectively. Now, what about that bankruptcy? Well, as he was leaving the meeting, he was stopped by an Associated Press reporter and asked about the future of small family dairy farms. He told them that the family dairy farm may not be able to survive as the industry moves towards a factory farm model. He says it's getting harder for farmers to get by on milking smaller herds. He told the Associated Press, in America, the big get bigger and the small go out. Purdue said, I don't think in America we or any small business have a guaranteed income or guaranteed profitability. Just like California dairy farmers, Wisconsin dairy farmers also have a host of problems, including declining milk prices, rising suicide rates, the transition to larger farms with hundreds or thousands of animals, and, of course, Donald Trump's international trade wars. The Washington Post reports that the relocation of two agriculture department agencies out of Washington, D.C. has delayed the publication of dozens of research reports, squelched early stage studies, and halted the release of millions of dollars in funding. At the direction of Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue, two scientific agencies, NIFA, that's the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and the ERS, which is the Economic Research Service, moved to Kansas City this past summer. Employees at NIFA manage a $1.7 billion portfolio of scientific funding. ERS is a federal statistical agency whose experts study agricultural trade, farming, and rural America. Purdue claimed that the move was done to put those researchers closer to the farming communities and that it would save money. Others, however, claimed it was a political move meant to squelch scientific studies or research that ran contrary to the Trump administration's beliefs. Staff numbers at both agencies have plummeted about 75% since that relocation. The nearly 40 delayed or abandoned ERS reports include studies into veterans' diets, the drift of the herbicide dicamba, honeybee health, and the opioid epidemic. Other reports addressed obesity, the international markets, as well as organic foods. At NIFA, tens of millions of dollars in approved grants are in limbo, set aside for recipients, but unreleased. 
Funds for projects supported by NIFA's competitive grant program, such as the $400 million Agriculture and Food Research Initiative, have also been delayed. The flow of research and grants from these agencies has slowed, employees said, piled up behind the logjab of empty desks. The Food Safety Modernization Act is now in effect. Part of that act is called the Produce Safety Rule. That's going to regulate the production of nearly all fruits, nuts, and vegetables, basically making sure that farmers are minimizing the transfer of any foodborne illnesses. However, there are exemptions for some farms, including those farmers who are selling processed foods, such as jams and wine. The CDFA's Produce Safety Program Supervisor, Michelle Phillips, explains. So we are really focused on the educate before and while we regulate uh, as part of our produce safety program. And so we want to make sure that we're educating the farmers on what to do on the farm, what practices that they need to have in place, as well as um, educating them on exemptions that are available. For instance, if you grow produce that is grown for personal consumption, then you don't fall under the produce safety rule. Also, there's a range of about 30 products that are rarely consumed raw, uh, produce such as sweet corn, okra, pumpkins, potatoes. Those things are not covered because FDA deems that those are generally not eaten raw. In addition, you have a processing exemption. So if your food goes to commercial processing, such as tomatoes or peaches that are grown specifically for canning purposes, then those um, receive a commercial processing exemption because they have a kill step that kills pathogens that are likely to cause foodborne illnesses. In addition um, to that, FDA came out with discretionary enforcement authority or a decision on almond crops such as dried beans and peas and wine grapes. A lot of the those industries addressed FDA to say, hey, we have processing that we do for these wine grapes. They have a fermentation process that produces wine, and so that introduces the kill steps. So those products are um, exempt from the produce safety rule. For more information about the produce safety rule, visit the website cdfa.ca.gov slash produce safety. And produce safety is one word. It's not as nutty as you think. Although it may seem almonds have grown in popularity with consumers in just recent years, they've actually been a popular staple for quite some time. Almonds actually have been popular in trade for thousands of years. The earliest varieties of almonds were actually found in China. They were carried by traders down this, the ancient Silk Road to Greece, Turkey, and the Middle East. With USDA vegetator Chantel Oyi also noting almonds' place pertaining to the Bible, King Tut, and the Roman Empire. And almond growers and those supporting them, like Darren Williams of the California Almond Board, say what makes their commodity popular these days is not just nutritional benefits or their complementary nature to your favorite chocolate candies. Because we don't only produce the kernel that you eat, but we also produce the shell that that's encased in, which is used in livestock bedding and has potential uses in recycled plastics. I'm Rod Bain. And coming up, a fun look at almonds in this edition of Agriculture USA. Performing on a program like this, the Almond Brothers. Wow. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, okay, bad pun there. But then again, the original group name of the Southern Rock Trailblazers was just as punny. The Almond Joys. A-L-L-M-A-N, Joys. Get it? Almond Joys? In any event, there has been much joy over almonds over the years. Here come the almonds. Mmm, boy! Almond Joy. Even going further back than that classic 1950s television commercial. Almonds actually date back pretty far. There's reference in the Bible when Jacob was asked for his sons to go to Egypt. He told them to take some fruits and he also mentioned bringing pistachios, nuts, and almonds. Later, King Tut took several handfuls of almonds to his grave. It was known to nourish the body and it was supposed to help him on his journey in the afterlife. That's Chantel Oyi, one of USDA's veducators, with a history lesson about almonds. Continuing with that theme, ever wondered why candied almonds are usually part of many wedding ceremonies? The Romans actually used almonds as a fertility charm, which they showered newlyweds during their wedding. So yes, the popularity of almonds goes back centuries. Oyi says much of its popularity comes from being a confectionery ingredient. Chocolatiers actually use 40% of the world's almond supply as an ingredient in their chocolate-based recipes. But in recent years, the growth in almond consumption comes from both an expansion of value-added products, such as beverages, flours, toppings, and butters, as well as promotion of health benefits from eating almonds. Almonds have very high quantities of vitamins and minerals, such as manganese, zinc, copper, vitamin E, vitamin B, and phosphorus. They also help slow the absorption of sugars and carbs, which has been shown to improve the effects of heart health, diabetes, and weight management. But you want to know something really nutty about almonds? Technically, they're not a tree nut. Almonds are actually encased in a fruit from an almond tree. And what happens is the nut itself is actually the seed. So therefore, it's actually referred to as a stone fruit. If you're familiar with peaches, plums, apricots, these are all botanically considered stone fruit. However, they're considered a nut in a culinary sense. Yet almond products are more than culinary. Darren Williams represents the Commodity Marketing Order in charge of promoting and establishing new markets for almonds, the California Almond Board. And he points out in the minds of the almond industry, there are four crops in one within the almond tree. There is the edible nut and the shell encasing used in products ranging from livestock bedding to recyclable plastics. Then there's also the hole or the fruity part of the almond that's around the shell. And there are sugars in there that right now they're used a lot in cattle feed in the dairy industry in California. But there's some potential to use those sugars in different food applications. And as for the tree itself, when the orchard ends its productive life cycle after about 25 years, you can take that entire tree and chop it up and reincorporate it into the soil or even use it to make cellulosic ethanol, which is an exciting kind of new area for the use of that woody biomass. Although originating in the Middle East, California produces more than 80% of the world's almonds. And with demand for almonds continuing to grow among global consumers and challenges such as water management also growing among producers, Williams says it's up to his industry to become as sustainable as possible. All of that depends on research. The research has to be done to show that it works, that it's beneficial to the grower as well as to an end user. And the Almond Board of California funds a lot of that research, cooperation with researchers at UC Davis and other land-grant universities and USDA, of course. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, here's something I don't think I have to remind you about. Nearly one-third of California's rural roads rate in poor condition, the second highest percentage in the nation. 
That according to an annual report from a transportation group. According to the California Farm Bureau Federation for Farmers and Ranchers, that can mean delays and danger in moving crops and livestock to market. And for everybody else, it just means a broken wheel or falling off your bike. California's began paying higher gas taxes last year to fund transportation projects, but observers say it's too early to see what impact that'll have on rural road conditions. A variety of subjects are being covered this week as part of the annual National Farm Safety and Health Week. Under the umbrella of the 2019 theme, Shift Farm Safety into High Gear. In addition to a proclamation signed last week by President Trump and encouragement by Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to recognize farm safety as an essential part of our nation's role as the world's largest producer of food, feed, and fiber, organizations such as the National Educational Center for Agricultural Safety are producing daily webinars on topics such as farmer health, health and safety for youth in agriculture, and tractor and roll roadway safety. Messages mirrored in online content, such as this Illinois Farm Bureau video. Farmers need to remove dirt and debris from the SMV emblem, lights, and reflective markings. This increases visibility, and these safety features can be more visible for motorists on the roadway. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, I know you're all waiting to become hemp-growing millionaires, but... Keep on waiting. The USDA could release this month long-awaited regulations for industrial hemp production, which were legalized under the 2018 Farm Bill. Growers and processors have since been stuck in regulatory limbo. The USDA has already issued guidance on importing hemp seeds, transporting the plant across state lines, and other areas where the lack of national rules is creating legal headaches. More people these days are familiar with the term sustainable agriculture. It's the implementation of practices on the farm level designed to reach a variety of goals, such as natural resource conservation, input reduction, and production that could lead to improved profitability. But have you ever heard of the term regenerative agriculture? There are a lot of individual farmers out across the country that were really starting to incorporate new practices, but very old as well. Those practices that were really at the turn of the last century that our forefathers were utilizing, and that was in the area of what we now term as regenerative agriculture. Practices, as Bill Buckner, former president and CEO of the Noble Research Institute, explains such as cover crops, biodiversity, composting, minimum soil disruption. Sounds like sustainable ag, doesn't it? So what is the difference between regenerative and sustainable farming? Regenerative agriculture is really taking a look at the entire system, the biological system of your farming or ranching operation. And if that means starting over in a rehabilitation process or a regenerative process, then so be it. Put another way, sustainable is just that, maintaining the same level of production, conservation, profitability, or whatever goal the ag producer chooses. Regenerative agriculture applies management techniques, many of the same used by a producer practicing sustainability, to restore systems to improve productivity. Buckner says this is perhaps notable, if not noticeable, on the ground level, literally improving the soil quality of cropland and livestock pastures. With today's technologies, and this has just been in the last five years with the improvements in high throughput sequencing as well as machine learning, there are a lot of fascinating companies out there that are beginning to map the genome of the microbiome in soil. And understanding that balance and what it takes to create that balance will help us better make more informed decisions around how that system functions. And in turn, better decisions on management practices to improve soil quality. 
and the benefits and outcomes created by such. Whether it's water quality or water quantity, biodiversity, nutrient management, how do they can reduce their fertilizer usage. As well as productivity for the producer. I'm Rod Bade reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We're talking with Roger Snell. He's with Park Greenhouse. They specialize in house plants. And Roger, we're here at the NorCal show. Uh, what plant is attracting the interest of all these retail and wholesale outlets that are visiting here? Um, everybody's been asking about our fiddle leaf figs. Um, we've been selling them out. It's a new product for us. It's an old plant, but uh, Pinterest has, has brought it back to everybody's <laughs> eyes. Um, it's a dramatic plant. It's got a huge leaf, ficus lyrata. And uh, if, if you turn your back on it, it'll be uh, tickling the ceiling in no time. Yep. It's a good plant. Just don't overwater it. Um, and it's a, a solid plant to grow. It does reach for the sun. And so wherever the sun is, you got to turn it and keep it turned. Okay. Like I say, big dramatic leaves. It doesn't get that wide, though. It, it gets taller than wide. Yeah, it's, it's very horizontal and uh, vertical. Um, but it's a great plant. And Pinterest is... is has started a lot of people into houseplants now. All my nurseries that I sell to are going through so many houseplants, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like the old days. What, what uh, plants are they asking for? Everything, um, like the string of hearts, an old, old plant, um, and they just want all they can get of them. So string of hearts, I mean, it looks kind of like a creeping Charlie. Yeah, like creep Charlie, heart-shaped leaves. They get kind of a variegation to them, um, a little, um, innocent flower that doesn't really show much um, other things like the string of pearls has been really big again and and the uh, string of bananas and just like the name implies it's a cascading plant uh, the string of pearls look like green peas on on the plant and the string of bananas yeah like green bananas yeah it's, it's a cool plant yeah. easy to grow um, succulents you don't need to water them much they can they can't take full sun everybody thinks that they grow them in full sun but no they need some shade, especially in our Sacramento area. Now, you, you spoke about heart-shaped leaf. I'm staring at one right here. Is this making a comeback, too? Anthuriums? Anthuriums, yeah. The, yeah, the, was it a Hawaiian love plant? Yeah. <laughs> All the old plants for people are winning. I mean, we'll probably have to start growing piggyback plants again or something. You know? um, no, what? No coleus? Yeah, oh, we still do a lot of coleus, too. Um, but even they're coming out with all these new Diffenbachias. Um, this one's called Camouflage. With a, it's a, a chartreuse with dark, dark green spots all through it. Yeah, it's a great modeled effect. It's sort of a, a light lime green leaf with these dark green spots. It's like somebody took dark green paint and threw it on the leaf. Yeah, it does look at that. Yeah. And then um, the Sansevieria, the um, mother-in-law tongue, and the snake plant, another popular plant. Um, now, the beauty of, of a snake plant like that is, it, it, I like to call it a bachelor pad plant because it's for the person that wants houseplants but doesn't want to take care of them very much. Yeah, and the designers love them because it has the real uh, uh, upright growth, um, really kind of a architectural form. It looks mid-century modern. Um, with a good pot, it would be beautiful in a, a nice house. Exactly. The uh, mothers-in-law tongue or snake plant uh Interesting, interesting plant that is uh, making a return. Now, now, here's an old plant that uh, I may be making a comeback. I'm seeing it in my neighborhood a lot, and, and I'm even seeing it, uh, people trying it as an outdoor plant up here, and that's always chancy, and that's the uh, Ficus benjamina, the weeping fig. I know, yeah. I, I saw them when I was driving up here. Um, I grew up with them in L.A. when I was a kid, and they were a, a front yard tree. <laughs> yeah, but uh, here, I mean, they don't like temperatures below 40 degrees. No, not, not at all, no. But they're attractive. 
Yeah. Now, the one thing about the weeping fig is if you change its environment ever so slightly, yeah. it will drop leaves. But then what happens? It grows more leaves. Yeah. You no, know, you, you, you just move it three feet from the spot it was in. It'll drop all its leaves sometimes. But they will grow right back. Just don't overwater them. Okay. Yeah. A lot of great house plants that don't require much care. Like I said, I like to call them bachelor pad house plants. <laughs> Any more bachelor plants here? Um, well, the um, umbrella plant. That's what, umbrella plant's really easy. I, well, the, like I love the hypoestas um, for uh, outdoor, for sh- shade areas, for um, for like an impatient spot and stuff. But they're a good house plant too. Um, they're a, a pink um, with green veins. Yeah, really it, attractive. It reminds me of a low-growing coleus, yeah. if you would. Yeah. So would this be planted outdoors as an annual? Yeah, as an annual. In the shade. In the shade, or as a house plant in a, in a, a nice window or bathroom. And again, that's called hypoestis. Yeah. All right. It, yeah, it's a beautiful little plant. I like that. Ponytail palm. Tell me about that. Um, it's a good plant. It has a, a, a large bulb down on the bottom, and then it comes up with a palm frond look to it. Um, it's a very attractive plant. They get quite huge. You, you can see some in uh, large containers that the bulb on the bottom would be, you know, 12, 18 inches wide and stuff. As that bulb gets more constricted, will the plant flower? I've never seen one flower. Have okay. you? No. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you, I've never thought of that, but no, I've never seen a flower. All right, so that's the ponytail plant. So th- I guess it would need uh, repotting then every now and then to a slightly larger pot. Sure, and, and most plants do, I, I definitely. A lot of times, from my experience, when people brought in a plant that was suffering, like a house plant, it was the biggest problem was that it was root bound and it needed a larger pot. Roger Snell, Park Greenhouse. A lot of great house plants here. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thanks, Fred. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.